Boss Level is sponsored by Talented. You know how all the Hollywood celebrities have their own agents? Well, Talented is essentially based on the same idea. It's a new management agency for developers and members of software development teams. They help you score the job you want. I'd want to join Talented just so that if someone told me their company is hiring, I could say, yeah, call my agent. Or, or even better, yeah, just um, have your people call my people. Even if you're not currently looking for a job, it's still a good idea to join the network. Because as a member, you'll gain access to their events, such as exclusive workshops on tech topics or exclusive visits to interesting companies. Membership is free. Go to talented.fi to sign up and get your personal agent. That's talented.fi. You are listening to the Boss Level Podcast, and I'm your host, Sami. My guest today is Risto Silasma. Risto Silasma is first and foremost an entrepreneur and a paranoid optimist. He's the founder and former CEO of cybersecurity company F-Secure. His current role in the company is chairman of the board. Risto is also chairman of the board at Nokia. He took on the role in 2012 when Nokia was in a very difficult situation. And actually one of the topics that we discuss is how he came to accept the offer. We start off with Risto's programming background, then move on to the early days of F-Secure and explore how the company was founded and how it grew. Regarding Nokia, we talk about the people side of the transformation Risto has led, the disadvantages of being a public company, and whether structures drive behavior or the other way around. Before we get to the episode, a general reminder, reviews for the podcast on iTunes are very helpful in growing the audience and making all this worthwhile. So if you've listened to several episodes and appreciate the content, Writing a positive review on iTunes is a great way to say thank you. Sharing the episodes on social media is also obviously very helpful. So thank you for showing your support. Now let's get to the episode. Uh, So let's just start off by talking a little about how you got into computers at all. So where did that start? Well, it actually started when when my school somehow got a what they called a uh, dysfunctional or a, a faulty prototype of a Wang 2200B mini computer back in the early 80s or late 70s. And it had a total of four kilobytes of memory and magnificent computing power and so forth. But I learned the program games. Was it a that. PC? No, or it was not a PC. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's what I thought, yeah. It, something else. <laughs> yeah, it was something that is not known anymore. <laughs> it was not, not CPM. It was, I don't, I don't even know what it was. Yeah, yeah. It was a Wang 2200B, that I, that I remember. And we mostly programmed with BASIC. Yeah, yeah. On, on that machine. And mostly games. The yeah. same kind of games that we played during the recess for example, one of my favorites was throwing coins on the floor, and the one who got it closest to the wall won all the coins. <laughs> yeah, so you implemented that, that as, a, well, as, a, as a computer yeah, game. Yeah. Okay, that's cool. Awesome. 
Why did you find it so interesting to like start sitting in front of a computer and thinking about programming when you could have just played the actual game? Well, it's it's probably hard to understand nowadays because computers are taken for granted. But back then it was really a revolution. I mean, a, a machine that could do certain things better than a human being, mostly calculations, much quicker. And then the, the feeling of creativity, that you could, whatever you could dream, you could implement on the computer. And then, of course, you ran out of memory very soon, so you couldn't actually. But yeah. the feeling was there, that actually you can come up with a, with a wonderful new idea, and then you just do it. And nobody has ever thought about that before. And it can do, you know, be a lot of fun or great productivity tool or actually do something that nobody has ever done before. It was just, it was like science fiction in the sense that you're allowed to dream about things that have never been. And yeah. then you can do them. Yeah. Uh, so then you actually, at some point, you started getting more interested in the security side of things. Well, that was much later. Much later, This yeah. What I was talking about now, I was 11 years old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the first several years were just games. Yeah. I became very interested in natural language processing. Back then, adventure games were not graphic games. Yeah, yeah. They were text-based. Yes. So Zork, for yeah, example, yeah. some people might still remember that. And I wanted to go code the world's best text-based adventure game. Wow. And what I what I worked on was a way of understanding language in the sense that it understood the real world objects. So, for example, it understood what is a container. It understood size. It understood a little bit about shape. So you could put things within each other, multiple things within multiple sort of in a nested way. And you could carry them and it understood about weight. It understood what size and what weight you can carry. And then you could string together very long sentences. So take the little red box from the, the top shelf, put it into the white suitcase and close it. And then it did all those. And then, of course, I ran out of disk space. <laughs> because even if I could virtualize, sort of use virtual memory, then the disk size was the limiting factor. So I never finished the game, but the, the language part... I did no finish or it, it worked. So what I did then I my dream of creating this game that would be would be played around the world had just gone up in flames. <laughs> so what would I do? I sent a article on what I had written or what I had coded to Microbitti magazine. Yes. And then I became what I thought was a wonderful career as a journalist or as a freelance journalist. So I worked for all the Finnish computer magazines, Mikrobitti, MacMailma, Tietokonelehti, MikroPC, Tietoviikko, and so forth and so forth. You wrote I, articles about computers. I, I wrote articles about games and programs and computers and printers, and I did big reviews When I when I moved away from home, my first apartment was on a fourth floor in a in a building without a lift. And sometimes when I was doing 
reviews of large displays which weighed like 60, 70 kilos each and I had like 15 <laughs> of them and I was carrying them back and forth. I I did not feel that good about that. And the laser printer reviews were pretty heavy-duty stuff as well back then. Nowadays they're, they're light. Of course. But back then they were big and heavy. And they were actually brought to your apartment, your home. They were not brought. <laughs> okay. I, I carried them up there and then I carried them back down and... You know, the, the the glamour in freelance journalism is non-existent. <laughs> yeah. you, don't, you don't have a staff. Yeah. Nobody does anything for you. Yeah. You do everything yourself. Yeah. Did you uh, ever, like, at that point in the in the magazines, there was a lot of, like, these uh, listings of programs, like someone listing just code, print, printed out yeah, code. Yeah. Uh, Were you working on those? Yeah, sure. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah great. For example, this adventure game, yeah. it was... Certain parts of it was were published. It was a series, yeah. so I was teaching people how to write these types of programs. Okay, so you started off uh, programming basic, then started working as a journalist, uh, freelance journalist, then went to the university to study computer science. That was my technical yes. subject, but I, when I entered the university, I thought that I already knew enough about computer science. I don't need to study it. And of course, okay. I was completely wrong. <laughs> I realized my my mistake fairly soon after enrolling in the university. But I started studying a fairly non-scientific list of topics, business strategy, international marketing, international law, uh, economics. But this was still in the, the University of Technology. Yes. And then my technical subject was computer science. Okay. Okay. And and was that around the time when you started getting more interested in security related things? Yeah, when I was a second year student, we had a a course about starting a company. Mm-hmm. And as as a a part of that course, we had to fill in the forms to start the company. And then return them to the teacher. Oh, okay. Me and my working partner, we returned those forms also to the department of of trade or whatever. Yeah, yeah. It so was you actually, actually registered the company. We actually founded a company, <laughs> yeah. yes. And we both were doing consulting work yeah. on the side. Mm-hmm. And we thought that taxation-wise, it might be a good idea to have a company. So that's how F-Secure was, was started. But called Data Fellows back then. Then called Data yes, Fellows. Yes, yes. Okay, great. Yeah. And my friend with whom I started it very soon had to start working full time, finishing his studies and then continuing to work in the company that he, he did his final work for. So I was left alone, but I continued working and my customers were happy. So I had to either say no or hire somebody to help me. So I put a notice onto the the student notice board mm-hmm. and started hiring people. And then me and the first person, Ari Hyppanen, who I hired, we both ended up writing or co-writing a book on data security. Not because we knew anything about the topic, but because we were interested in it. It was a little bit the same kind of an interest that originally attracted me to computers. It's a new world, sort of this living programs, programs that lived in this global networked ecosystem and just traveled within that that ecosystem. It was a fascinating topic. 
And back then, the computer viruses were not that harmful. They were not meant to cause harm. They were just meant to show how wide they can spread. There's no, I can, I can sort of put myself in the shoes of the people who wrote those first viruses. They, they just released something and then they waited to see how far it would get. It was like a game. If I do this really well, it will go far. And the only thing that it did, it displayed a, some graphic at the yeah, end. Yeah. An ambulance or something. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but, but what I think is really crazy about this is that that back then, I mean, the internet was very young. Uh, security and privacy, they were not like, they were not big topics back then. They were like a very small group of people were kind of concerned about these issues because computers were like not a lot of people had computers they were getting more popular but then again once again the internet was very very young and very few people were using the internet and it wasn't like privacy concerns didn't really exist in the same way that they do today and uh regarding regarding like security of computers you were mostly interested in in viruses that spread from floppy disk to another floppy disk or something well actually not even that yeah because in the the early days corporate IT managers and CIOs, most of them actually believe that this is all just hype. There are no such things as computer viruses. <laughs> and back in the early days when we already had a product and we went to see a CIO to sell the product, sometimes we just got thrown out. Like, don't come here and, and cheat on me. <laughs> don't, you're, you're lying, you're misleading me. There are no computer viruses. You're just wow. selling a, a program that does nothing. Wow. Said, okay, uh, okay, we'll go away. But if you get infected, please call us. We'll come and help you. And then, of course, that only took a, a two, three years before people realized that actually this is a real thing and it's not going to go away. But that was an interesting, interesting first few years. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Um uh, uh, I'm actually going to ha- ask you about hacking, but before I do, let me remind you that it's been more than 10 years, so you're not going to be prosecuted anymore. So uh, did you hack un- university computers? No. <laughs> you didn't? No. Actually, we when when I started F-Secure, one of my sort of chi- childhood set of values were in a romantic way and maybe a little bit naive way, I transferred them to the company. So I really wanted to start a company that would do good. It was very important for me. And a company where people would really love working. It would be like a family. And that was that was what I wanted to do. So we had very strict sort of ethical rules. And one rule was that we would not hire anybody who had ever hacked anything. I mean, of course, you can you can hack your own stuff, yeah, yeah. own stuff, but somebody else's stuff or without permission, or who had ever written a computer virus. Yeah, and I think that policy is still in place at F-Secure. Well, it's not actually because now we do red teaming. Oh, okay, okay. So we, for the the last few years, we have allowed our people to hack things, for example, inside our own company, our own systems. We didn't even allow that mm-hmm. earlier. So we were very strict. But now we do that. We are hackers for hire for companies who want to test their own defenses. So we need that expertise. And of course, we, we practice in our, on our own systems and 
Yeah, yeah. Um, so what were the time... But we don't write viruses or malware yeah, yeah. as such. Yeah, and I, th I think that's one of the things that, or also in the early times that like antivirus uh, computer uh, like programmers or companies providing antivirus software were blamed for that they that they're the yeah. people writing the yeah. viruses <laughs> yeah which actually hurt me personally yeah because it was so important for us that we do good and then if somebody first they doubted that computer viruses didn't exist and we were selling snake oil yeah and then they thought that actually we were the part of writing the viruses in the first place and then we were selling the medicine yeah and it was it is weird. Yeah, I'm sure. But of course, nowadays we get 500,000 samples per day. Nobody thinks that the industry is creating the viruses anymore or the malware anymore. And it's very clear that some people are making big money out of, you know, cybercrime. I actually sent a virus sample to F-Secure mm -hmm. back then. And I remember that I emailed with someone that was... Maybe, I, I don't remember the country. It was in Europe, but, but it was outside Finland. I remember that it felt crazy that I, I tried to email this Finnish company, but mm. I ended up talking to someone in Europe about a virus. It just felt crazy because I guess all the businesses in Finland back then were so focused on Finland and it was weird but to that's, come. Like, that's yeah. the power of networks. Exactly, exactly. Mm. And that was, that was already the early internet days where you yeah. could actually email people yeah. at least. Yeah. Yeah. And that was one of, a similar revolution as the the introduction of computers to my life, the internet. I mean, suddenly you could just bridge these distances and be in real-time communication with people that you have perhaps never met. It was a wonderful feeling. You were kind of pioneers in thinking about how to lead organizations that are remote and where work is also like knowledge work, that it's harder to, to measure the output that they produce. Yeah, part of the... The credo that we built into the company, we called it the fellowship. So all our employees are still called fellows as part of the, the data fellows. Yeah. But we are all, all fellows and, and there are many elements to that fellowship. But one was that whatever somebody comes up with that is not completely crazy, but just slightly crazy and which might make working in the company more fun and more motivating. We'll try that. So we tried all sorts of crazy things. And we probably the and these are self-evident nowadays, but we're probably the first company in the country that offered you no know, free soft drinks. We had pool tables, we had jacuzzis, we had the sauna switched on very first thing in the morning. So people you know during lunch lunch they went or after lunch they went to the sauna and yeah. sat in the jacuzzi and talked about the, the next challenge in, in whatever they were working. And we had a company car. We had a, a sports car. I remember that and we, car. <laughs> we, we gave out to the, the fellow of the week. Yeah. So uh, somebody who had done some, something really nice got that sports car for a week. And that, that's an example of an experiment that didn't work out. Because then people started speeding and they started behaving in a very silly way in traffic. And the car had our logo on its side. Ah, okay. So yeah, it was, yeah, yeah, yeah. then we started getting calls from angry people that this yeah. F-Secure car has been, you know, doing all yeah, sorts yeah, of yeah, ugly yeah. things. So we had to discontinue that. <laughs> okay. But whatever people came up with, we, we tried at least. 
Yeah, I, I remember the car from uh from assembly, the uh the yeah. c- computer gathering uh thing that was that was huge back then. I remember you uh the F secure drove the car to the like in front of the building and you guys were basically hiring people mm-hmm. and talking about how as an employee you can get to drive mm-hmm. this awesome sports car. <laughs> and I was a kid and I was very impressed. <laughs> and of course Jussi Lakkonen, yeah, yeah, the yeah. father of Assembly. He yes. worked for for yeah. us for many, many years and actually all the first years of Assembly were during the F secure time. Yeah, those those were good times. <laughs> did you attend assembly at, at some point? Yeah, I did yeah. many times. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> um, so then at some point you must have felt this uh, urge that you should focus more and more on the business side of things and less on the on the tech. That you started hiring people who were probably like even better at the tech stuff than you were. Well, that was not difficult because <laughs> I was not actually that good. <laughs> okay, so it actually came like you realized that fairly early on. Yeah, I, I realized that already when I started in the university. Because as I said, I thought I was like really good in in computers and that's why I didn't need to study it anymore. Yeah, yeah. And within the, the first few months, I realized that it was not actually <laughs> true at all. Yeah. But then I had already gone down the track of sort of business management and leadership mm-hmm. and strategy and all the international marketing, international law that I I talked about and I'm really happy about that because it has truly helped me because I I got a very broad understanding of both tech and business and law and economics and that has been truly useful. In the early days in the company I I was the CFO, I did all the accounting, I did all the invoicing and I was the HR manager. I paid all the salaries and I I recruited people and I did some coding for certain projects. I negotiated all our distribution agreements. I actually wrote the agreements myself, not using a external lawyer. I was the tech support for our international partners because I knew them because I had done the agreements with them. Yeah. I wrote some of our manuals. I translated them from Finnish to English or English to Finnish. I did pretty much every job at one time or another, not all of them at the same time, sure. of course. And and it really helped to have had that that broad sort of education. And then it helped me to hire. Of course, yeah. Because you knew what the actual work is. Yeah. 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 Uh that's that's I think that's very important and and I think that's one of the complaints that you often hear from employees is that this this person who's like running the company has never actually done mm-hmm. the work and doesn't actually understand the the details involved with the the frontline work. Yeah. And But, there's there are not many jobs that I have not done at some stage or another. Yeah. Which I'm I'm kind of proud of and I I really liked all of them. Yeah. Yeah. Except the vacuum cleaning, that I didn't like too much. (laughs) We took turns to clean the office. So everybody had one week, and then we rotated. And I I hated that. (laughs) Okay. So... uh So for you, uh, the transition from from focusing more uh, on business instead of tech that that wasn't a big deal. You were like, it it happened very naturally for you. Yeah, and I was sort of forced into yeah. it as well. I just didn't have time for yeah. for coding anymore. Yeah. A few years ago, I 
I decided to give it another try, and I taught myself a new language, mm-hmm. Lua. Ah, if you okay. know Lua, yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah, that was that was fun, and I I rewrote some of the apps or prototypes of some of the apps that we did, you know, fifteen years earlier. Yeah, and and I I really sort of remembered why I loved it so much. Coding is really a lot of fun. It is. Uh, what I special, especially like about coding, I, with the with the new company, I've also started writing co- a little bit of code again for our prototypes. And what I like, what I love about coding is the is the shortness of the feedback loop. Mm-hmm. How you can just immediately yeah. re- see results. <laughs> yeah. Whereas, especially in the kind of like line of work that you do, the feedback cycles are like so much longer. That's true. Yeah. But then there's another type of fascination with that because you need to approach it in a different way but intellectually it's it's sort of more challenging because you have to be prepared for so many different versions of the future because you you don't have the time to wait to see which one happens you can't go down only one path in your mind in your mind you need to go down a number of parallel paths a little bit the same way as people often visualize sort of quantum mechanics working So you go down all the paths at the same time, even if that's not the right way to think about it. Yeah. For strategy work, I think it is the right way to think about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, let's get back to that. I want to talk a little more, more about that, but let's try to finish the, or I, I still want to hear a little about the F-Secure story. So uh, so at some point you started, uh, you, you became the CEO, you started acting as the CEO, but but then... Uh, well, I was the CEO from the beginning. F- from the beginning, So that okay. didn't change. I was just... You know, the, CFO the CFO and, and the yeah, yeah. other other jobs on the side. Yeah, yeah, okay, okay. And then, uh, so you were CEO and then uh, decided to step down as CEO and become the chairman of the board. So uh, why, why did you des- uh, decide to do that? What was the, like, the, the reasoning behind it? Well, one reason was that we had pretty much done, I don't know if you think about the list of things that you want to do in a startup and then you check the boxes you you want to grow you want to become international you want you want to win awards you want to be recognized you want to do an IPO you want to whatever it might be we pretty much had yeah. done those and i had been the ceo of this same company for 18 years and 18 years is a long time and i i just felt that i was not learning anymore It was more of the same. Bigger company, more markets, different products, maybe a broader portfolio, but it's not that different from what I had been doing already for 18 years. So I turned 40, and as some people do when they sort of have to change the first digit in their age, they start thinking about what shall I do when I grow up. And as part of that process, I decided that I, I need to make radical changes and decided to for the first time hire somebody to to do the CEO job. Uh was it easy or hard to let go? Well the thinking about it was really hard. Is it the right thing to do? Am I doing the right thing for the company? For my my colleagues, the fellows? Is this something that I am I escaping from something which feels bad? Or am I running towards something which feels good? 
So I, I really had to spend quite a long time thinking about that, probably 18 months. But then once I had made the decision and I had a CEO, I was so determined to to prove that I will not micromanage the CEO and I will I will be a good chairman. I will not sort of destroy what I had built by mismanaging in the new role. And it actually was surprisingly easy. I had no problems letting go. Partly because I became so busy with other things. Being busy with things is a good way to stop you from being busy with the wrong things. Yeah, yeah. And it also sounds like you hired a good CEO that you could actually trust that person to to take good care of the company. Yeah, I think I have been quite lucky in the sense that now I have had three CEOs and they have all been good choices. I'm good friends with the two that have already departed and I, I can tell anybody that they did a good job, they are good people. I would hire them again, not for the CEO role because I now have a good CEO, but I would hire them again to another company. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I've been lucky in that sense. Yeah. And recruiting people is one of the most difficult things to do because even if you feel that you have really spent a lot of time in the interview process, you know, maybe spent six hours, and that's such a short time. It is. And you do reference calls. You you feel that you have done a great job in in taking references when you have called six people. Six people. And think about how important it is to get a good CEO for a company. How how value destructive it is if you fail. So we typically don't run a good process when picking a CEO. We could do much better. And that's why I'm saying that I was I've been lucky. It's not that I have done it with a better process or anything, but because when you have hired hundreds of people, you sort of develop an instinct as well. And yeah. maybe I'm learned to trust that instinct. Even if I'm very engineering minded, I like checklists and plus minus tables and that type of stuff. Yeah. Um Going back to like major decisions that that you've done during your life and career, uh, one of the major decision points that you've gone through was stepping down as chairman of the board at Elisa and becoming the chairman of the board at Nokia. And that was in 2012 when Nokia was actually doing very poorly. And that sounds to me like a very scary career move to make. So uh, like... But it was not a career move. If you think about it that way, then you are calculating what's good for you and i don't think that's the at least it's not the only way to look at things that's a great point and instead i think we need to look at what's our duty what's the this sounds silly but when when we make decisions one of the most typical questions we ask out aloud is what is the right thing to do and then how do you think about what is the right thing what are the characteristics of the right thing? And under those circumstances, I had been on the Nokia board for a few years. And the handset business was was heading downwards fast. And the company's future was at risk. 
and then I'm asked if I want to become the chairman. Oh, how could I say no? If I had started coldly calculating what's good for me, what's the risk-reward ratio? I mean, reward, financially, none, basically. Risk that I would become known as the man who destroyed Nokia. Because even if everything happened before my my role, yeah. people only remember the face that is in the papers when the bad news are published. Yes. yes. So if I had thought about it logically, of course I should have declined. Yeah, so you were thinking about what's the right thing to do uh, in regards to Nokia, in regards to Finland, in regards to the world. Yeah. Or if you were looking at that situation from the, the side and somebody else was there, what kind of a decision would you respect? What kind of a decision would you want some third person to make? And then why don't you make that same decision yourself? Or how can you not? How can you respect yourself if you have a clear idea what kind of behavior you would respect in some other person and then you behave differently yourself? Given this situation, you were you were thinking that okay, this is the right thing to do. I need to I need to do this, but regardless, you're still aware that that the the worst case scenario might happen. Did you have sleepless nights thinking about the bad things that could happen, or were you so convinced that this is the right thing to do that you were like, whatever comes comes? Well, I'm I'm a paranoid optimist. That pretty much with being an entrepreneur, those two things define me quite well. I'm paranoid in the sense that I'm I'm always asking questions about things that might go wrong. And when somebody presents me with an idea or a plan or a scenario, I always start looking for holes in the plan, for mistakes in the thought process. Not sort of wanting to find them, but instinctively thinking about what could go wrong, how can we preempt that way to fail, or how can we predict the different paths down from from where we are today. But I'm I'm always an optimist. I always believe that we'll work it out, even when I shouldn't, but I still do. I I think we can conquer any challenge and solve any riddle there's no no limit so the combination of instinctively thinking about the worst things that can happen and then being a very strong optimist on that we can tackle whatever comes and i think those two sort of build a feedback loop a virtuous circle because when you are an, a pessimist or an paranoid you actually plan ahead You also prepare for the less likely circumstances. And that actually gives a foundation for your optimism. Because you know what, if, let's say with with Nokia, the strategy process that we ran or the preparing for the tough battles ahead, we did a scenario-based planning process where we had a huge number of scenarios, even some very ugly ones. And for each scenario, we always discussed, okay, if we start seeing signs that we are heading down this path, what shall we do? What's the action, list of action items? 
First of all, what actions can we take to reduce the likelihood of this undesirable scenario right now, tomorrow? What can we do? And then these, for these positive scenarios, what actions can we take right now to increase the likelihood of these positive scenarios? And then if we start heading down, then what shall we do? And having that action plan gives you faith. Not having an action plan for a possible scenario that people are really having nightmares about, that's, the, that's really why you have the nightmares. So you feel that it was important to kind of be able to process all those worst case scenarios. Absolutely. And when you've processed them, then you can deal with them. And it takes the fear away. Yeah. Because the the one thing that people in companies fear are the things that are so bad that nobody dares even talk about them. We don't acknowledge them. When we acknowledge them, say that we have a plan, these are the actions that we are taking right now, And this is the plan we will implement if things start still heading that way. And then it's not something to be afraid of anymore. And the the moves that you actually ended up making, like selling off the mobile phones to Microsoft and buying the rest of the networks business from from Siemens, they've been documented uh, properly uh, in a lot of places and the results have been really good. But I'd actually like to talk a little about the, the people side of that situation. Because back then in 2012 uh, at Nokia, the the morale has has like it's, it's probably been very low. So, what were the kinds of things you talked about at the board level about increasing morale, and what were the kinds of actions that you uh, uh, decided to take on that part? Well, I believe that in a situation of crisis, the most important element of success is trust. Trust is like the the oil in the the wheels of a machine. Without trust, there's just too much fi- friction and things will heat up and blow up. So how do you create trust? There's no magic to that. Being open, transparent, talking about the real issues, acknowledging the bad outcomes, creating plans, spending a lot of time together, being very consistent The the easiest way not to have to remember what you have said earlier is to always say what you think. And then you don't need to remember. So we defined a set of rules of behavior for ourselves. And I introduced those in the first board meeting on the day of the AGM where I was elected as chairman. And those rules of behavior help one to take a little distance from the the real challenges, day-to-day challenges, the fires that are burning in your feet. But you, for a moment you stop thinking about, okay, what kind of behavior do we respect? What do we expect from ourselves as a board? What do we expect from the management team? And what kind of a culture do we want to build in the company? And we had a few very simple things. It's now a list of eight topics. Back then, I think it was six. And some of them have remained the same. For example, that we need to have fun. Any meeting where we don't laugh out loud is a dismal failure. <laughs> that is the, the rule. So then we, we just, it sounds silly, but when you have that documented, 
people joke more. And then we laugh. And the the more painful topics you have on the agenda, the more you have to focus on finding something to laugh about. And then we assumed a data-driven approach. Said that, okay, we make all our decisions based on the, the widest possible set of facts and the best analysis and the best experts in that domain. And we make our decisions based on those facts and not based on sentiments or emotions. And we argue passionately during the process. But once we decide, we are all united. And because we are so data-driven, and this I added later, because I I didn't figure it out back then. But nowadays, our, our rules also say that because of our data-driven approach, we may end up working an absurd amount of time. So anybody who comes to join our board will have to recognize that if we hit some troubles and the board needs to start, you know, everybody needs to be on the oars of mm-hmm. the of the ship, then we may have to work an unreasonable amount of time. And in 2013, we had 64 board and board committee meetings. And that's unreasonable. But it was necessary. And it, it helped us overcome the challenges we had. And of course, the fact that we worked so hard and the management worked even harder, we got to know each other really well. And just spending that time together builds trust. So there's there's no magic to building that trust. But the one thing that many miss is stopping in the beginning and talking about behaviors that can be respected. People typically, because we are in, a, in an urgent situation, now fires all around, we just start putting them out one by one. But we shouldn't. We should first stop and think about okay, what is really important at the behavioral level. Because that can build trust. And that trust can save us when the going gets really tough. How about when thinking about uh, the organization at the operational level? So when you talk about the importance of behaviors, and in my experience, uh, one of the things that drives behavior is the structures that we have in place. So basically the target setting, the the bonuses, the the, like all, all that kind of like the structures that we have around that. And I feel that even if you talk about behavior and set uh, like guidelines for behavior, if they're um, not in line with the structures, it's the structures that win. Because there's, for example, there might be just like monetary reasons, like financial reasons for you to pick going for the target instead of uh, applying or using the guidelines that we have for behavior. Do you feel the same way that it's like the structures are... Are that important? Sometimes. But let's say if we, for example, document how do we want to deal with our customers? What kind of behaviors do we want our people to exhibit at the customer interface? And then, of course, we have sales targets. But if we have people who deviate from our expected behaviors to get more sales, 
And then the, the question is when we find out. And they, of course, first we need to make sure that the people know what kind of behaviors we expect and what kind of behavior we don't tolerate. They need to know. Once they know, if they still go over the line and we find out, that's the moment when we will be tested. If we then sort of let that slip between our fingers, then everybody will know that, okay, the rules mean nothing. It's all just talk. But if we do what is necessary under those circumstances, that when we said that we don't tolerate that kind of behavior, it really means we don't tolerate it. Sometimes you need to make an example. And I, I always feel that we need to give, when people make mistakes, we need to give them at least a second chance, sometimes even a third chance. But it depends on the mistake. It's on, if it's on values, then I don't really know if we should give people a second chance. Because people don't necessarily change on values. They can change in other ways. Yeah. Because one of the things that I've been really interested in the in the past couple of years is whether like there's now there's a lot of examples nowadays of companies that don't need sales targets or don't need mm-hmm. numeric targets at all. And what I feel that leads to is that you can actually talk more about behavior and talk more about the soft soft stuff because the structures are not kind of uh, taking you into an other direction, a completely different direction. So do you feel that uh, sales targets and numeric targets are necessary for a large organization? Or do you feel that in the future we might be able to uh, have organizations where we just set a vision level vision level targets, so to speak, and, and just trust people that we don't need detailed sales mm-hmm. targets for them and they will still do the best they can. Well, first of all, public companies are different from private companies. And in some ways to the detriment of the public companies. Many of the rules and regulations and expected behavior from public companies actually are not, they don't make business sense. But our shareholders and the regulators insist on public companies doing things that don't make business sense. So we do it. And it puts us at a disadvantage against private companies or PE-owned companies. So that's one one difference. So if we have in a public company incentive structures, we have to have targets because our shareholders and analysts and Rating agencies, they, they all will hold us accountable to not just rewarding the management without having very clear targets and metrics in place. Because there's this assumption that we just give money away to people and that the, the same people who sit on company A's board are actually CEO, CEO on company B and C and then the CEO of company A sits on their board and then they just pass money around, which is, of course, not true in a in any decent company. But having said that, I think even in, in private companies, having 
targets means that you are trying to understand the future, trying to prepare. You are making investment decisions. Sometimes you might be tight on cash. So it's important to have some sort of an idea what kind of revenues you will make. And there are certain types of companies where they have one product or service that is so hugely popular, so incredibly fast growing, and they are so well funded that they don't have to do all this. First, they are in the sort of pre-revenue stage and they have tens of millions in VC funding or even hundreds of millions or even billions, and they just go as fast as they can, and you don't need targets. And you're incentivizing people on stock, and it makes life very simple. And then they perhaps do an IPO, and they already have this, this grip on the market. They are the winner takes it all. And again, they don't necessarily have to have targets or all these similar systems that, that most other companies do until they become mature and that hypergrowth wanes down. And then they are in a different world and they find that, hey, actually, we need to have many of the same structures in place that more normal companies do as well. These structures, when they are well designed, they they are in in a different dimension from the, the value systems and they don't interfere with the value systems. If you do them badly, then of course they they will interfere. And you, you need to be very thoughtful when you design these these systems and structures. And you need to be very clear also what kind of behavior you expect. So for example in, in Nokia we have a, a list of around 10 cultural behaviors that we expect, expect from people. And some of them are somewhat different from the way we in general behave today. But it's a very clear message that this is the direction that we want to move into. And then we just need to make sure that in practice we reward people who do what we say we want people to do. And we also help people who don't do those things to understand that, hey, this is, we are, we are, we're really serious about this. We really want you to do this. And if you don't fit into this culture, then you perhaps should look for work some, someplace else. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that, like regarding targets and, and getting to them is, is also that that assumes that we can actually, like we're able to set targets that are right, mm-hmm. that are valid. Whereas with the complexity increasing in, in business, I feel that it's it's getting more and more important that on top of just focusing on reaching those goals, we should be able to actually discuss whether the goals that we set are correct. And if we have rewards that uh, we can we can get more money if we just hit the targets, then that will lead us to not even think about whether we're like going after the right things. Yeah, that is the the downside of of these structures. Yes. But of course, then in a sensible company, you will just change the targets in mid-year or mid-quarter or if necessary, mid-day. <laughs> yeah. So you, you need to react. Okay, we, we were wrong when we were estimating how much we can sell this product or, or how difficult the competition will be or what, what the impact of the instability in the financial markets would be. So we need to just reset 
replan, and and that's it. And you shouldn't make that process too cumbersome so that you can't be really flexible with it. Yeah, I think that's what happens very often. Yeah, because because the process of replanning is so big that you don't want to start it again. Or <laughs> what is even even worse in my book is that thou shall not set targets again during the year. No. Because in a public company, you need to inform your shareholders and you need to do all sorts of things. And and I, I really am allergic to the comments that you cannot do this. <laughs> it sounds sensible, but you cannot. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's that's the worst kind of thinking that I can I can imagine, because of course we can, of course we can we we'll find a way. And from that idealistic perspective, I often think about the stock market and whether we have to uh, like go with the rules that have been set by the stock market, with the with the like the rules and the reporting and the stuff that like applies to uh, the public publicly listed companies. Maybe in the like in the long term, maybe we can actually change that to mm-hmm. fit. The modern world that we're living in. Yeah, and of course there are companies that are not abiding by all those rules, and most of the rules are comply or explain, and and then you just explain. But there is a strong tendency, especially from the legal community, to immediately say that no, you can't do that, but you just need to push back. Okay, I understand that it will be difficult but you are such a great lawyer that i'm sure you can figure out the way yes. for us to do this and oftentimes they do that's a great that's great advice i think yeah yeah uh we're kind of uh short on time i just have two more two more questions that that i want to want to ask you so uh what what do you hope like what's the direction that you want uh, organization to go into so like What are the ways that you hope that we would run our organizations differently? We are working on making the most complicated machine that human beings have ever built, which are the global networks, self-organizing. It would be great if we could make companies more self-organizing as well. In the in the same sense that we often see in nature where you don't need to command from the top for the troops to march in a certain direction. The the bees and the ants, they know what they should be doing, and they coordinate and they they synchronize amongst themselves. I, I trust people. If we hire good people, we just need to let them free. And then the question is, how do we exactly do that? Because it's not a simple thing. Chaos is not good. You need to have some order. But you still need to need to let people people react to the input that they get when they are with customers. And they we need to allow them to link to the bigger picture, but do more based on what they know and what, what they know is best. And I think technology can help us do that. And AI can help us support that decision-making in a completely new way by taking more data and linking that to what we should know will be the outcome of certain actions. So, for example, a 
a person who would have much more flexibility in decision making than would normally be the case, maybe low down in the, the organization, could test run a certain scenario, certain actions against the corporate AI instead of going up the chain maybe several layers and taking several weeks in in doing that and would get an idea of whether the thought that he has or she has is what what kind of a scenario it will lead to. So there are many ways in which technology can help us liberate people from the, the yokes of the corporate structures. And I think that will be good for people. It will be good for the companies. And we should look for these opportunities. We should prototype and we should test. I, I really like pilots. Yeah. Because you you know this sort of one way of looking at the world is that we have certain things that are simple and predictable. And then you just give instructions and robots can do that or people can do that. It's boring, simple. Then there are things that are predictable and very complicated. You can still gather a large group of people who can write the manual on how to do what is necessary. But then there are things that are unpredictable and complicated. And you can't you can't write a manual. You have to prototype and you have to test and you have to learn by doing. And that's the kind of a world that we are heading into. Exactly, exactly. And that's kind of why I'm so worried about the structures that we have, because the, the structures that we have in corporations normally, they're built for the simple world, mm-hmm. or, or they're built for the complicated world. They're not built for the complex. Yeah. And that's why I kind of, I feel that there's there's a lot of work to be to be done there. Yeah, yeah. that's true. Uh, we, we often say that the, the world has never changed as, as rapidly as it's changing right now. And somebody suggested that we should look at that the other way around. But this is the the wrong perspective into that. We should actually think that the world will never change as slowly as it's changing today. And that sort of turns your head around. And yeah, we are actually heading into a future where change will be even more rapid. So this is the slowest we will ever see. That's great. Uh, last question. Uh, what books, videos, or people have been most influential to you? So, like, who should, what should people read or what should they look up to understand, like, how you became the person that you are? Well, actually, I, I became the person I am largely because of the books that I read before I was 12 years of age. And I read a huge number of books. I was reading a lot and i i actually read these typical classical boys adventure books mm-hmm. which i first read the the ones that were available in the library above ground and when i had finished all of those i went into the archives to get the books that were in too poor condition to be loaned out anymore or too old or whatever and i started reading those so i read a lot and in these classical adventure books certain values were taught to people or young young boys. So chivalry, leading from the front, being honest. But I 
nowadays I really like Chinese philosophy. I like these ancient Chinese sayings a lot. They're really deep thoughts there, and some are quite simple, but then you can you can really think about them. And trying to read those in Chinese makes it even more interesting. <laughs> I'm sure. Thanks a lot for your time. Thank you. It was fun. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the full episode. Since you obviously didn't hate the episode, please consider sharing it with people who also might not hate it. Some might, God forbid, even like it. You never know. If you're looking for new podcasts to listen to, a podcast that I've enjoyed lately and would gladly recommend is one called Acquired. Acquired is a podcast about technology acquisitions and IPOs. The hosts fill you in on the facts, walk you through the timeline, speculate on what could have happened otherwise, and then rate the acquisition or IPO. I've learned a lot from the podcast and I've enjoyed listening to it. The link is in the show notes. The next episode of Boss Level will be up in two weeks. Talk to you then. Have a great week. This episode of Boss Level was brought to you by the kind people from Columbia Road. Their consultancy helping clients increase revenue and get more customers. They help companies like Marimekko make more money. That's a simple way of saying that they transformed the fashion company's digital sales into agile, results-driven operations. An old friend of mine, Matti Parviainen, has been a part of the company since they set up shop a year ago. Hi, Matti. Good morning, Sami. I just wanted to have a quick chat with you. So uh, what are you guys all about? Okay, I'll be quick. We're doing our best to transform how digital commerce works. Too often people see it as an IT project where you build a web shop and then it's done. It's much more complicated than that. Like all good sales work, it's continuous and always changing. We design and develop the sales channels with this in mind. Okay, that sounds about right. Can I talk some more? <laughs> sure. Thanks. It's been my dream to be a podcast sponsor. <laughs> so um, to get great results in digital commerce, we need to work in a highly unpredictable and complex environment. We want to be super lean, but also adapt to the more standardized practices that companies have built for their business. I love doing this together with our clients. If you think Matti's job sounds interesting, you should go to columbiaroad.com slash boss level. They've managed to poach some of the best talent in the area, but are still one consultant short. Whether you're a designer, developer, or a business expert, Columbia Road is interested in the listeners of Boss Level. You're following the good stuff, and they would like to meet you. So go on, check out columbiaroad.com slash boss level, or visit their brick and mortar shop on Erikenkatu in downtown Helsinki. Let's talk. Let's talk.